Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This show is sponsored by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. Visit drobo.com to learn more. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 186, Identity Crisis. Welcome to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, trying to figure out what the heck is going on and whether what happened is something we can use today. This week, Identity Crisis. <laughs> oh, man. That happens to me all the time. What does? Yeah. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. And who, by the way, wouldn't want to get in touch with us after that stellar intro? If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, ah, you're more than welcome to. 323-522-5641. When I say more than welcome, I mean more than welcome. Please. Drop us an audio line, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. In a moment, Mr. John Champion will be bringing us John Champion's trivia, brought to you by John Champion. But first, a word from Drobo. A family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays that are designed to protect your important data forever. And they do a lot more than that. Now, John, people have heard me talk about my Drobo Mini a lot. But yes. you have a Drobo 5D. I do. Okay. And it, it has kind of changed everything in the way that I work. Really? It, it really has. I'm sorry, I didn't mean crazy. to sound so disbelieving. <laughs> I Oh, really? No, I, Tell me more. No, for, for real. So I, I have my 5D. I loaded it up with uh, three hard drives. And I have 10 years worth of video now in one place. And I'm talking about all kinds of stuff, things that I shot at Star Trek Las Vegas, um, commercial projects that I've worked on, interviews, all kinds of stuff, all in one place. And the beauty of it is that it's all backed up because of the way the Drobo uh, desktop software works. Mm -hmm. I just sort of let it rip. And I know that all of that stuff is backed up and safe. And now I'm in the process of adding drives. So I started out with six terabytes, and now I'm adding four terabyte units to that. So I just have a huge honking amount of data in one place connected to my laptop. So it is an incredible way to work. And the more I discover what this can do, the better. So the model that I got, I particularly wanted because it has Thunderbolt. So I know that my data uh, transfer times from the Drobo to my computer are incredible, mm -hmm. super fast. But the 5D has an mSATA slot on the bottom, and you can actually put a solid-state drive in that, and then it will keep those kind of small, frequently used files there. So they're even faster. They're served up even faster to your computer. It's incredible. It is a great device to have. I mean, to me, it is an essential piece of my computer system now. Um, I, I could not love this more. And in fact, one of my friends is ordering a Drobo because of my excitement over this one. It is really very cool to hear how excited you are about it. Because I mean, mm -hmm. I've talked about my many and people have heard me talk about my many. What it is, is I store, it's basically a little bit of extra storage for me. Well, no, it's a lot of extra storage for me, but it's it's I use it for like a time machine backup and I use it for storing a few files. It's not something that really changes the way I work. I like it for the security of it. I love, though, hearing how, you know, excited you are by the uh, by the changes it's brought to your workflow. Now, yeah, I was actually going back and forth between a laptop and a desktop, and the desktop was kind of the, the big computer that had all the editing files on it. Yeah. But now I, I don't have to do that anymore. Now I've got a super fast laptop and this Drobo hooked up, and now everything, like I said, 10 years worth of stuff is just right there for me to click. So I love the Mini. 
I love the Mini. You have the mm-hmm. Drobo 5D. You're a huge fan of the Drobo 5D now. Yes. There are a bunch of other Drobos out there. It really, I mean, which one you get depends on what your use case is. So there are two websites we want you to know about. Uh, Drobo.com is where you can go and find out about all the different Drobos that are available. And then uh, when you're when you're ready to buy, when you when you pick the one you want, uh, it's DroboStore.com, and we do have an offer code uh, for people uh, so they can actually save a little money on whichever one they choose. Yes. ML100 is the code you want to use. So just for Mission Log listeners, you can save $100 off the purchase of your Drobo. The Drobo Mini, the 5D, the 5N, or any 8-drive or 12-drive, yes, if you're that hardcore, a 12-drive system. You can do that at drobostore.com. So if you're like my friend who is so excited at my being so excited about the Drobo, use that code ML100 and save yourself 100 bucks. And, of course, we do thank Drobo for sponsoring this week's show. And with that, John Champion opens up a world of trivia. (laughs) All right, Ken. Today's episode, Identity Crisis, was written by Timothy DeHaas. Well, the story is by Timothy DeHaas, and he was a Star Trek fan who submitted his story idea through that famous open submission policy. Um, He wrote this one. He'll come back again in a few years with a story for Voyager, and he contributed to a handful of comic book stories for both Star Trek and Babylon 5. Now, the teleplay was written by Brandon Braga. We know who he is. And uh, according to Brandon, his first pass at the script was um, when Jordy was actually added as a key player. That was not in the original draft. Um, also, he did a version which really played up the horror, but eventually it was kind of toned down for TV. The episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe. He has, of course, many other credits, and we mentioned him most recently with Galaxy's Child. Now, in this episode, we have a reference to the USS Victory, not the HMS Victory, which we have mentioned before, one of my favorite historical ships, but the USS Victory. If we were to try to maybe tie the Star Trek version of that back to an actual ship, well, the USS Victory was built as a merchant ship the banker in 1863 acquired by the U S Navy where it was, uh, you know, decommissioned and recommissioned as the victory. She was a wooden ship, had a light armor added for wartime service. And then after the civil war, she was purchased at auction, renamed the Lizzie Tate. And then a couple of years later turned into a barge and no one knows what happened after that. So we hope the same thing doesn't happen to starships. Uh, We also have in this episode, the return of season one uniforms. Yes, and we have Jordy back in the red season one uniforms for those uh, flashback scenes, for those of you who are paying attention to those details. And um, now, of course, in this episode, we have very extensive makeup effects. Uh, in fact, up to about six hours for LeVar Burton, uh, the longest session that Michael Westmore did on a TNG project. Uh, so combine that with the suit, which was painted with ultraviolet reflective paint, and then the UV lights were added to get that glow that we see in the episode. Um, they had actually done a camera test a year before and then came back with the idea when this particular script lent itself to incorporate that effect. Let's talk about guest stars, as we always do. We have Mona Groot as Ensign Graham. Mona is from... <laughs> yes. She is Groot? She she is Groot. Okay. She is Groot, yes. Um, Mona is from Norway, and she was Miss Universe in 1990. In the years since, she has appeared as a judge on Norway's Next Top Model, Norway's edition of Dancing with the Stars, and she is now the editor of a wedding magazine. And I I, kind of wanted to point her out because I thought it was interesting that in this episode, we have somebody at the station on the bridge who has an accent that we have not heard on the bridge Mm. (laughs) ever before. You know, we've, we've got the Shakespearean accent of uh, English accent of Patrick Stewart from France. Yeah. From France. Right. And you go years and years and years before, and you have uh, Chekhov's Russian accent, but but, um, kind of surprising that we don't have a lot of accents on the bridge. And and here we have uh, a glimpse of another one, one that we haven't heard before. We should go ahead and mention Scotty. He was on the bridge sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. And of course, Cole Meany actually walks around with an accent all the time. Yeah, but he's but never on the bridge. Never on the bridge. Well, almost never on the bridge. Yeah, 
Yeah. All right. All right. And we also have uh, Amick Byram as Hickman. Now, Amick, in addition to being an actor, is a singer and voiceover artist. He's done work for a number of animated shows, and he's got a number of TV guest appearances. In addition to this, his only foray into Star Trek. Now, he did appear a couple of years ago in Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West. So if you want to make kind of a, a tenuous Star Trek connection, well, we'll talk more about Seth and later Mission Log. And suffice to say, he is a big Star Trek fan himself. Now, we also have Mark and Brian, Mark Thompson and Brian Phelps. This requires a little bit of backstory, Ken. Uh, in Birmingham, Alabama in 1985, the Mark and Brian show started on I-95. And yes, you can picture a teenaged me listening to I-95 in Birmingham to the Mark and Brian show. And it only lasted for a couple of years because by 1987, their show had blown up, was getting huge national attention. And they moved because, well, frankly, they got a better offer to KLOS in 1987 in Los Angeles. They continued there until 2012. So a long history as broadcasters. And well, they were Star Trek fans and they got invited to come be on this episode as a couple of the aliens. So we don't see them. (laughs) We see them, but we don't recognize them. Okay. Uh, But that is Mark and Brian. And uh, they actually recorded segments for their show while they were on set for Star Trek. Now, remind me, they had like an ill-fated TV thing as well, didn't they? They did. That was in, I believe it was 91 to 92, right around there. But yes, yeah, yeah, they did. And I have to say that, you know, if you wonder how deeply I dig for trivia, um, I was very pleased to find the unofficial Mark and Brian archive, and I think I listened to about five or six hours of vintage <laughs> Mark and Brian. I didn't find this particular episode, but it was a lot of fun to hear uh, air checks from Birmingham in the 80s and uh, ads for businesses that no longer exist. Yeah, <laughs> so. so let's see, it goes it goes Love Boat, and then it goes Moonlighting, mm-hmm. then it goes Cole Check the Night Stalker, mm-hmm. and then you're doing the Mark and Brian podcast? Well, you know, funny, I could actually tie that in because I believe it was Brian who, after they split up in 2012, he did a podcast with Jill Whelan from The Love Boat. Okay. So now it all comes together. (laughs) Well, I know who your first guests are going to be on whichever one of those podcasts you do next. Yeah. 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 And and funny thing, (laughs) uh, after they broke up in 2012, Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't really a breakup, they decided just it was time to end the show. Yeah, this this was no Opie and Anthony. No, 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 no. Yeah, it was no they Stephen broke Gary. up. Yeah. 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 It was no Stephen Gary. It was no Opie and Anthony. But um, they haven't talked to each other since. Oh. So it was a little, maybe, I don't know, a glimpse into what happens at the end of Mission Log. <laughs> I hope not. Never. <laughs> never. <laughs> okay. And finally, we have Marianne Plunkett as Susanna Lighton. Now, she got her start in the 80s in guest roles, uh, Miami Vice, followed by shows like Matlock and L.A. Law. After Star Trek, and in addition to more TV roles, Marianne appeared in uh, the movies Squid and the Whale, Blue Valentine, as well as the Netflix series House of Cards. Now, she actually succeeded Bernadette Peters in the Broadway production of Sunday in the Park with George and has many, many other theater credits to her name. An old friend of Jordy shows up on the Enterprise as other old friends disappear. Let us find out what is going on. Prologue. Home movies of an away mission. Lieutenant Susanna Lighton in command and... Hey, there's Jordy. This must have been a long time ago. He's wearing red, not on the Enterprise. It looks like 49 people at the Tarchanin 3 outpost have vanished. No sign of illness, no sign of struggle. It is gone. Well, there was one weird thing, a Starfleet uniform that looks like it was ripped off of someone. Also on the away mission, Hickman, Mendez, and Bravel is on the camera. Or in the camera. We're watching the movie in a conference room on the Enterprise, by the way, along with Commander Lighton, Riker, Captain Picard, and there's Geordi, in gold on the Enterprise. 
Ravel and Mendez have gone missing, and Hickman was last seen in a stolen shuttlecraft on the way to Tarchanin 3. Lighten and Jordi are the only two from the away mission five years ago who've not shown any signs of weirdness. Yet. Strange. All the colonists disappeared, now the away team investigating their disappearance are starting to disappear. Kind of funny. Act 1. The Enterprise is on the way to Tarchanin 3. The plan. Intercept Hickman's stolen shuttlecraft and try to figure out what happened to Ravel and Mendez. Lighten and Jordy are catching up in 10 Ford. She sees Jordy as a younger brother to whom she used to give good advice. Jordy seems to see a different sort of closeness between them, though that could just be Jordy being weird with women. Lighten admits that she's a little frightened by what's happening with the away team. Drinks are interrupted by a call from the bridge. The Enterprise has a fix on Hickman's stolen shuttle. Hickman is not answering the Enterprise's call. Worf puts the message on a loop. Turn around and stop your ship. Not happening, though. In fact, Hickman is headed too fast at Tarchanin 3 and at a dangerous angle. If he keeps up at this rate, his ship will be destroyed when it hits the planet's atmosphere. Then it hits the planet's atmosphere. Then it's destroyed. This heavy moment interrupted by news from Worf. There are two more shuttlecraft on the planet's surface, but no life signs. Riker preps an away team consisting of himself, Worf, Data, Geordi, and Commander Lighton would like to come along. On the surface, Lighton and Geordi check out the shuttle Mendez stole. Lighton also spots some obviously alien footprints headed away from the shuttle. Worf says he's certain they're being watched, though Data says there are no life signs around. And Geordi's found another ripped-off Starfleet uniform. This one in the shuttle stolen by Mendez. And now Lighton's missing. Oh, wait, there she is. When Geordi catches up to her, she's being a bit odd. She says Mendez and Bravel are alive. If you stand still and listen, you can hear it. Feel it. Then she totally wigs out, telling Geordi to stay away. He grabs her and she begins thrashing, struggling. He calls for a medical emergency beam out as we head to break. Act 2. In sickbay, Lighton is embarrassed. More than that, though, she's anxious to get back to the planet's surface to figure out what's going on. Crusher and Picard say until they know what's going on with her, she's not going anywhere. She and Geordi will look over data compiled by data. They'll work on things from here. Out of earshot, Picard asks Dr. Crusher about Geordi. She says his bioscans check out as fine. Of course, so did Hickman's and Bravel's before they went away. Lighten, meanwhile, is a bundle of nerves and energy. She thinks they need to get back to the surface with a ton of people to figure out what's going on. But she's got a tremor in her hands that she doesn't notice until Geordi points it out. She's worried now that whatever happened to the others is happening to her, though Geordi assures her that he won't let anything happen to her. Looking over Data's data, he says they found skin cells from an as-yet indeterminate life form on the ripped Starfleet uniform. Also, there were those footprints from an unidentified life form as well. Lighton says they didn't see anything like that the last time, though Data points out that the planet has lots of sandstorms, which may have scrubbed the footprints five years ago. Even if there is an alien intelligence at work here, though, why would the away team come back? Jordy and Lighton will work on that. Crusher and Data talk over the haste with which Data is working to figure out what's going on, Crusher basically forces Data to admit that he's worried about Geordi, even though he can't be because he has no feelings, even though he does. In engineering, something is getting the best of Lighten. She's done with Data. She needs to get back to Tarchenin 3. Everything's down there. Plus, the screens are starting to hurt her eyes. Geordi suggests a trip to sickbay, but she's done with that, too. Then, she falls over. When he goes to help her up, Geordi sees physical changes on Lighten that he's not noticed before. She is being physically transformed into something not human. Act 3. Crusher is working to slow whatever is happening to Lighten. The doctor says she's developed an extreme sensitivity to light, though that really looks like the least of it. She's also got veins outside her skin and webbed hands and snake eyes. Lighten tells Geordi that whatever is happening is inside her, and it's winning. He tells her to not give up. Crusher has had a look at Lighten's new skin. Her new cells are almost identical to the alien cells found on the ripped-up uniform from the planet. She doesn't think the away team was abducted. She thinks they transformed into a new species. While Crusher doesn't know how Lighten caught whatever she has, she's sure everyone on the Enterprise is safe. Well, everyone but Geordi. He's probably going to turn into whatever the others turned into at some point. Maybe in weeks, 
maybe in hours. Crusher wants to keep Jordy in sickbay, though he argues that he needs to keep working on a solution. And it's settled. The computer will monitor his movement so he can't leave the ship. He'll keep working, and he'll let Dr. Crusher know if he starts exhibiting any symptoms at all. He may have had his soon-to-be webbed fingers crossed on that last part. In sickbay, Lighten's getting worse, though this yields a new fact. Her body's kind of emulating the light around it. Also, her body's not reacting to the process that was supposed to stop the changes. But what if it's not her body changing? What if it's teeny tiny things inside her changing her body? Going over the old away team recording, Jordy spots something. There's a shadow in the shot, seemingly cast by... nothing. He has the scene recreated on Holodeck 3. About to enter, he notices a tremor in his soon-to-be webbed hand and doesn't tell anyone. Act 4. From the picture, the computer was unable to tell Geordi what might have been casting the mystery shadow. On the holodeck, and through the process of elimination, the computer is still unable to tell what was casting the shadow. But it can show Geordi the approximate shape and size. About human-sized, about human-shaped. So why didn't it show up on recordings? Geordi's got a bigger problem, though. He's turning into whatever Lighten was turning into. Good news on that front. Beverly's found the source of Lighten's condition. A parasite in the thymus is spreading genetic instruction or something. They'll try to remove it and hopefully reverse Lighten's condition. Removal of the parasite was successful. We'll have to wait and see if she turns back into who she was. Now that they know what they're looking for, they should be able to check Jordy for the parasite. Anybody seen Jordy, by the way? The computer says he is not on the ship. But nobody's left the ship. Computer Pegs' last known location is Holodeck 3. Worf and Riker head that way, but be careful. If he's transformed, his skin can do what Lightens was doing. Imitate the light around it. Sensors wouldn't be able to pick him up, and he would be able to hide standing right in front of you. Remember how cool the Predator looked when he had his shield activated? That's kind of what Geordi looks like now, like a guy wearing a cloaking device. We know this because he's found a way off the ship knocking out a transporter control person, overriding the security lockout, and beaming himself down to the planet. Act 5. There's less than an hour to save Geordi from permanently becoming whatever it is he's turned into. But the thing is made to hide, and they're having trouble finding him. Data has an idea. They can use a UV light to spot Geordi if they can get close enough to him. He'll get to work on that. And it looks like Geordi beamed down to the same place they beamed down to before. Still, he could have gotten a decent distance by now. Beverly's preparing to join the away team when Lighten wakes up. She's healing quite nicely, and she understands what happened to her now. It wasn't a parasite. Taking over her body was that thing's way of reproducing. When she hears that Geordi has changed as well, she says she has to go down to the surface. She's the only one who can find him. On the surface, Lighten tells them to put away their flashlights. That light scares them, though the UV light should work and they can't see in that spectrum. Then they spot three of the veiny, glow-in-the-UV-light things, two fully transformed, and one on the way. That's Geordi. Though he's afraid, he seems to recognize Lighten. She talks him into coming with her. Back in sickbay, Geordi's on the mend. Lighten says there's no hope for Bravel and Mendez, a fact Geordi confirms. There's no way to communicate with them. Picard decides to leave them be. He'll put orange cones around the planet to make sure no one else is infected in the future. When they're alone, Geordi tells Lighten that on the planet, when he was transforming, he didn't know who she was. But somehow, he believed her. He trusted her. She says it must have been because of all the good advice that she used to give him. The end. Man, can think of the luck. So you, you spend five years seemingly mm-hmm. okay. Yep. All right. And then all these other people from your away mission and all the people who went after you start disappearing. But then five years later, you get together with your friend from that away mission and then instantly you both start transforming. Yeah. Well, like, it takes about five years, apparently. I, well, except for the people who came in between or uh, the people who are also on their mission. Well, it, it all just a little bit earlier. It all just happened right now, though, right? I mean, roughly five years, give or take. Yeah. I mean, they said that uh, one of them—I can't remember which one—was sick for weeks. The other one was fine up until an hour before she went loopy. Right. I'll tell you honestly, I kept thinking, I, I kind of wish this was about two other characters and Jordy didn't change. 
because then he would spend mm, forever wondering, yeah. you know, what day that was going to happen to him. Right. Yeah. Would have been yeah. creepy. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was creepy, but it would have been creepy. Er. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, how often do they videotape a, uh, an away mission? Uh, you know, all the time. Well, like, I mean, I think the, the actual answer is as often as they need to look back at the tapes for an away mission, which so far has been uh, this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was also in The Children Shall Lead, which wasn't really taping an away mission, but we did have mm. home movies. And I guess, right. um, oh, no, that turned out to be fake. I was going to say the birthday party for Riker's kid, but Riker didn't right. have a kid. Yeah, right. I will say the rigging has improved a lot since in the Children mm. Shall Lead because we talked mm-hmm. about the fact that it's like you know just a, a tripod. Yeah, you stick the camera on that and then tape it. But now stick the camera on a guy. Yeah, <laughs> he gets to hold it. Have him stand perfectly still. No, he wasn't holding it though. I think he was like wearing it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that's why I said he was still. on the yeah. camera or in it. Yeah, not yeah. sure which. It's true. Uh, Jordy, boy, he enjoys a bachelor's life too much. Doesn't he just though? This is a breakthrough, though, because Jordy can admit to himself that he is lying as well as to others. Really? So, yeah. Well, I thought he know. was just trying to fool her. I, well, I don't think but, she can be fooled because, you know, a, an older sister always knows. Sure, sure. He, he kind of gives it up in about oh, 0.2 seconds. Yeah. Uh, was he in love with her, by the way? Oh, maybe we'll talk about this later. I apologize. I think we will. Okay. I think we will. All right. Okay, yeah. Let's um, do that then. By the way, you know who's missing in all of this? Deanna Troy. Yes. Could have actually been very helpful from the beginning. Yeah, but Marina Sirtis had to have a week off, didn't she? (laughs) That's why this episode happened the way it did, because Marina wanted to go on vacation. Yeah. And they didn't even have a clever line in there like Picard saying, oh, and Deanna Troy is out visiting her mother. (laughs) Only one of the Troys were here. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Right. Why don't right. why do they, I don't understand actually and you know I don't know the intricacies of writing and I don't know how all these things are scheduled and all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? But it seems like this is the second or third time that Troy's been missing where Troy would have been the thing to solve it immediately. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why why not do like a military episode where she's going to be I'm not saying she would be useless in that, but why not do like a, you know, we're all going to be trapped under this rock thing or something like that. Right. Because, yeah, otherwise you're just sitting there going, well, where's Troy? She could answer this. Where is she? Right. Seriously, is she napping? What's going on? Right. Um, the aliens, I know you said they were like, there was like a lot of like makeup stuff around this, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I just kept thinking how great one of those would look on my wall next to my Led Zeppelin poster. Oh, you know, yeah. Turn on the black light, yeah. turn off the mm-hmm. regular light, fire up the Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and just stare at the uh, alien man far out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm so glad that in your recap um, and, and cleverly, subtly played, but uh, <laughs> Doctor Crusher gets it. Yeah, she sees what's happening with Data. So oh, does sure. Data. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Now he doesn't feel concerned for his friend, mm-hmm. but he's highly motivated. Right. For his friend. Yeah. 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 yeah, he's he's not my friend. He's just the guy that I hang out with all the time because uh, my circuits are used to his presence and uh, they would miss his presence. Uh, uh, he's my friend. OK, OK. He's my friend. Well, no, he's he's actually comfortable with the fact that he misses people. I mean, he knows yeah. that he misses Tasha Yar. And then after, you know, her her sneak of a sister came on yeah. board and tricked Tasha him into all this sister. stuff. Yeah. He, he knows that he missed her as well. It was as if he was anticipating her. He said, yeah. and that, yeah. you know, ends up being a miss. So, mm. yeah, we just need to quit talking about it. I don't mean you and me. They need to quit talking about it. We also need to quit talking about it, but I know we can't. We can't. And apparently yeah, neither can they. We won't be able to because, you know, the the, the whole thing of uh, data and emotions might come back. You think? It might. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, we have uh, space flashlights in this episode. Love the space flashlights. Well, I do, too. You know, they're not particularly convenient. In fact, we got a, a comment from Miles who said, uh, no, he's he's not having the space flashlights. The, the, you know, your hands would get cramped. Yeah. Uh, it's not a really convenient way to hold a flashlight. Well, they never have them on for more than like 45 seconds, so it's really not that big a deal. Um, yeah, not that we see. <laughs> but yeah, Bravel is actually standing there with like a camera on his head and a light on his head. So I don't understand really why, why don't we just give them all that headset? Come to think mm-hmm. of it, why don't we give them all the camera headset so that we can always keep track of what's going on in a away mission? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Edit together a whole multicam thing. Could be. Yeah. Hey, 
Yeah. Um, speaking of the use of photography and video here, we're back to the old Blade Runner uh, enhance photo thing. You know, where you just tell the computer, eh, just uh, just fix that part over there. And the computer does. But I, what I really love here, it's the second time we've seen it, is using the holodeck as a forensic tool. What was the first time? In uh, uh, Matter of Perspective. Where okay. you had the space station blowing up. And, right, uh, right, right. Riker right. okay. being the, the dog that he <laughs> is. Right. And well, it ended, right, with the space station blowing up around them, but them all being there. Mm-hmm. That's right. I forgot about that part. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to see. So I hate to be so of the day because 10 or 15 years from now when somebody is listening to this, they're going to be like, really? That was new ever? Yeah. yeah um, right. But I heard somebody the other day hit on a really interesting use case for virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And he is somebody who studies virtual reality as far as like the business implications and who's going to be a player and all that stuff. And it was I, I, And he went to Twitter and he was like, I just saw the neatest use of virtual reality. And it was actually... Um, putting people in disaster areas. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're soliciting donations from people rather than you know, doing a slideshow or showing them pictures or telling them stories of people's names, put a headset on them and let them see how terrible it would be to live in the place that you're trying to get them to give money to, uh, you know, to fix. Wow. Which, I mean, I, I guess wow. the reason I bring that up is just because it's always interesting to see, I mean, as we sit here now with our smartphones that are, you know, approaching, well... The smartphone industry actually kicked off in earnest in 1996, according to a couple of the firms that tracked them, although I would say it didn't really you know, actually kick off until 2007, 2008. Sure. Um, but you look at all the different things that people use uh, their smartphones for now, and originally what it was was like, oh, look, I can surf the internet and make a phone call. You know? and <laughs> right. I knew a guy who had a website talking about how he could actually do what it used to take eh, about $50,000 worth of equipment to do wow. on his iPhone. Yeah. Um, Handheld Hollywood was the name of the site. I think it's actually still out there. He's actually a guy that we should talk to sometime because he worked on Next Gen. But boy, have I digressed. I apologize, sir. (laughs) It's all right. It's all right. I I get where you're going with that. Um, I'm going everywhere with that, apparently. Going just everywhere. Yeah. I'm going to town. Jordy Jordy tells the computer, it says, uh, or HHL's Picard, program the computer to monitor my movements. Yeah. And I thought, that's great. That is such a good idea. But what about his comm badge? Because haven't we seen it before where the computer can be fooled to think that somebody is where they say they are because the comm badge is actually what's giving the computer the signal? I assumed – I mean, he didn't actually say monitor my movements, but I assumed it was actually make sure the computer knows that nobody's allowed to leave the ship. Or make Mm -hmm. sure the computer Mm -hmm. keeps track of who's leaving the ship and when. Now, I would think the computer would be doing that anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I mean the whole – because you're right. Just – I mean once he rips off his – once he rips off his uniform in a crazy alien frenzy, Mm -hmm. then yeah. Your computer keeping track of him is uh, absolutely useless at that point. Yeah, right, right. Um, I was thinking about the alien and it it doesn't – or multiple aliens. And and it didn't really seem like – uh, an advantageous way to reproduce if you are this alien species. How do you I mean, mean, maybe that's just my human bias speaking yeah. uh, that I feel like they're missing out, but Oh, well, there's that, but, but also just the idea that they've, they've got to wait for other, uh, assuming, you know, uh, bipedal hominid species to show up on their planet mm-hmm. so that then they can reproduce. You know, if uh, maybe the the other creatures that came to that planet were uh, Telosians or uh, Horta, you know, would they just reproduce into that and then actually transform them into kind of the shape that they are? Who knows? But it seems like it would be very slow going to propagate your own species. Well, I mean, yes, it would be slow going. I mean, look at the five-year gestation period, apparently. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. maybe they're more like the uh, xenomorphs from uh, you know from Alien, Alien, Aliens's all the mm. Aliens's movies. Mm. Um, it was an Alien Three, I think, uh, when we saw the one that was shaped like a dog, right? Oh yeah, right. They don't look. I mean, they don't go into a human form to become human. They go into yeah. whatever form is living, and they sort of take that form, which mm. was which was mind boggling when that happened. Mm-hmm. You kind of got to wonder too about the so there were forty nine um, people at the colony who we assume disappeared, but it turns out they probably didn't disappear. They probably became these things, right? which means there are 49 of those things already on the planet. Yeah. And who knows actually, I mean, is that the only way they reproduce or do they have another way they could as well? Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, yes. Look that. Something yeah. to ponder. Something to think about. Uh, speaking of things to think about, Will wrote to us uh, to ask a question mm-hmm. about the hunt for Jordy before he left the ship. Uh, when you're searching for somebody who's hiding on the holodeck, says Will, maybe before you go in there to try to find them, turn off the freaking holodeck. That would make them a bit easier to find. I know. I know it furthers the plot, he says. Not only does it further the plot, though, uh, Will, it actually also keeps them alive. Um, I think it was the episode where they were caught in the Dixon Hill novel. I'm not sure. But there was an episode where where some of our crew members were caught on the holodeck. And somebody said, why don't we just turn the holodeck off? The problem is if the holodeck, as I understand it, if, if there's matter in the holodeck that the holodeck doesn't know it shouldn't destroy, then it destroys it. Because oh. like, because all the stuff on the holodeck that the holodeck makes is real while it's on the holodeck, right? Right. Right. And so, you know, when you say end program, the holodeck says, okay, what all is here? I need to, I need to ball that up and put it back into my repository for the next time I have to make things, Right. Yeah, and so if it doesn't identify, you know, Jordy as Jordy because it can't, you know, he's not wearing anything that looks like him, and he's actually a different species now, it would just, you know, he would just end up in the bin of of, of stuff to make <laughs> new stuff next time. You'd think the computer would be able to make that differentiation. Say, wait, I didn't create that. Oh, even please, if it's not there, Jordy. There's so much stuff in the holodeck, though. It made London one time. It did. Well, <laughs> you know, some some of its projection. Well, it's true. And some of it's real stuff. Like, if you're going to eat a crumpet, that's a real thing. That's true. But if yes. you're walking down the street, that, that may not be real. I don't know. See, I, I kind of take it a little bit different step uh, from what Will said. I say um, you turn off the holodeck and then run in really fast and just throw a bunch of talcum powder. <laughs> and then whatever it lands on that you can't see, boom, there's, there's your alien. Yeah, that doesn't really help, though, if it destroys the alien in the process. I'm hoping that part doesn't happen. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's not Jordy anymore anyway, so don't worry about it. Right, right. Hey, I, I'm so glad that we have more warning beacons yeah. in orbit. Yes, yes. Now, I, I wonder <laughs> if the species will be able to survive without any new host bodies to transform, or do other uh, uh, species just show up and like, warning beacon says who? That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, though. What happens in the future? Look, if, if, if Space Baby taught us anything, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. if Galaxy's Child taught us anything, <laughs> don't worry about it. Look, it's alive now. Let's go away. It's a bit like Schrodinger's cat, but different. Mm-hmm. What happened to it? Who knows? Who knows? Do you see it dead before you? It could be fine. <laughs> Susanna and Jordy have been through a lot in this episode. Let us dig a little deeper into their metamorphosis. You brought up something a moment ago that we knew we had to shelve, and and now we're back. Okay. <laughs> you asked if we thought that Jordy was in love with Susanna. Yes. I'm not answering the question. I'm saying, yes, I did do that. Okay, yes, you did do that, and and now we'll hunt for an answer. All right, Jordy in this episode manages to have an adult, sensitive, respectful, and non-creepy friendship with a woman. You think so? You think so? I, I, well, well, the problem is this, that we've only seen Jordy up to now be terrible with women. Mm-hmm. And now we can't help but let that color what we see his interactions uh, uh, become with other women, hmm. you know? So we're, we're always faced with that. I, I think it would have been very different if this story, or at least this relationship, had popped up somewhere else. And we go like, oh, look, there's Jordy, you know, acting like he, he's sort of on equal footing with this woman, and they get along, and they work together. Um, and, and I thought if only he had started this way with the other women that he encounters, because she seems to get along perfectly well with him. And he seems he, he seems a little like uh, maybe a little bit like a teenager with a crush, mm-hmm. but he, he's still able to hold it in a bit and actually be functional as opposed to other Jordy that we've seen where he's not as functional because the crush overtakes everything. Yeah. Um, there was an idea out there as this script was being developed that Jordy would have something romantic with Susanna. 
Um, and I, for one, am glad they did not go that route because they thought, well, with all the problems that we've had with Jordy and his romantic life up until now, don't just throw in another one that would have to play out in a way where she's got to go away and it, it would just be kind of a, kind of a mess. So I really feel like the, the problem here is more with the order that they chose. I, I would have liked to have seen Jordy fleshed out like this maybe earlier on. Hmm. You know, or maybe in between some of Jordy's failures, it it, it would have helped. And maybe he would have been <laughs> well, written as... Well, hold on. One yeah. assumes that we are in between his failures right now. <laughs> so we're just in a perpetual state of Jordy. It's like Schrodinger's Jordy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's simultaneously failing and not failing with women at any given moment. Uh, it, I, I get what you're saying. I, I think what mm. I wish, I wish she had come on as an ex. I wish she had come up, mm-hmm. not an acrimonious ex, like, you know, you know, she decided to go, you know, take this other job someplace else. He decided to go on the Enterprise, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, we're given to understand that there's all this depth between them, but I'm not really seeing that depth. And he does seem like a puppy dog. He seem, it, yeah. it seems like puppy love to me in a way. And I kind of wish they had gone ahead and said, yeah, you know what? We used to be a thing. We're not a thing anymore. How you been? He could be like mature in that respect, but still. And then we would actually have at least one story of a successful romance with him. Yeah. Because I spent the whole time wondering, okay, when's he going to try to kiss her? Is he going to try to kiss her? Does she understand that he's in love with her? Because look at him. He obviously is. I, it just, I don't know. I mean, you're right. right. It was not. Right. It was not nearly as creepy as. Uh, certainly not nearly as creepy as what happened with Leah Brahms. Sure. And I'm not even talking about what happened on the holodeck with Leah Brahms. I'm talking about his shaming her for his behavior after. Yeah. I mean, there was yeah. nothing like that. Um, although there were a couple of times that I was like, eh, if there's nothing between them, then I don't understand why that's happening that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I. Yeah. It, it's. I, I like I said, I, I'm glad they didn't go the direction of just making it another like total infatuation. Yeah. But yeah, it, it seemed more more mature, more fully realized, more like they were on an equal footing instead of him just being a creeper. Well, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. yeah L- not, not totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and, and <laughs> she she was able to at least kind of relate to him on on the same level. It was great to see. It was like, yeah, Jordy, see, look, you can form friendships. Um, just don't don't be weird about it. Yeah. You know? um, one of the things that popped into my head after watching this episode a couple of times is that I kept thinking, and maybe this is sort of trying to put this into some historical context, but I, I was thinking about the process of discovering what this, well, we'll, we'll call it a disease for the moment, but, mm-hmm. but it is the, the way this cell, the, this alien cellular structure acts on humans. Um, I was thinking about the, the early AIDS crisis, or, or at the very least, you know, insert whatever terrible disease discovery you want on top of that. But this is 1991 AIDS as a national crisis, still very much in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, you know, right at about 10 years or less that it became kind of a national dialogue. Um, We can later talk about how Star Trek might have not done enough to address the social and political complications that were part of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. But in this case, I I kept watching this thinking like the process of medical discovery for the Enterprise crew felt like the medical equivalent of what happened when we discovered HIV and and what it does. Some of the things that tipped me off, you know, is hearing them talk about T-cells. Well, most of the public did not know what T-cells were and what they did until HIV and AIDS became a common topic. You know, that, that that was a thing that you heard then on the news. Once people talking about, well, here's what this, you know, immunodeficiency virus does. And then here are what T cells are and here's how that's related. So mm. that was one thing that stuck out to me. The, the sort of unpredictable transmission pattern. They were trying to figure out how this thing got moved around. And Dr. Crusher said essentially that this is a weak virus that it can do certain things to the human body once it's in the human body, but it doesn't just sort of get up and do something on its own. Hmm. Um, 
people were well and then suddenly ill and there was no coming back from that suddenly ill state. This is a thing that has a high, well, high mortality rate. They thought people were dying because of this. We didn't realize that they were transforming, uh, but a very unpredictable time frame. And then some of the dialogue in this, as they were trying to figure out what this was, they, they were worried, they were scared about, well, is it something we touched? Is it something we ate? Is it something in the air? They had no idea what it was. So all of these things, thinking about that in that uh, in that historical time frame, made me think, well, these are the kinds of things that I heard talked about when we talked about AIDS, particularly in the in the first decade or two hmm. of getting to understand that. Interesting. I didn't see anything like that at all. Hmm. Wow. I didn't try to put it in the historical context, though, and I know that's something we do mm-hmm. from time to time, and it just did not really cross my mind. I'll, and I guess the reason I don't really... Well, you and I both have lenses through which we view things or see things. Let me mm-hmm. let me start mm-hmm. by saying I don't feel like I'm reaching on this necessarily, except that it is our job, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love doing this show, and I, I know you love doing this show, or at least I know you tell me you do. <laughs> I do. It's, it's for real. <laughs> but but we have we have it. We have it. We were we were charged by a guy to actually look for you know messages, morals, and meanings, and try to figure out you yeah. know what we can take with us. Um, I didn't see an illness like AIDS. What I saw was more like a, I don't, okay, so alcoholism and drug addiction are diseases, we are told. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly you would agree that they are conditions. Some would say diseases, some wouldn't. I don't really want to get in that argument. I saw this as a behavioral thing in a way, though, like alcoholism mm-hmm. or like drug addiction or maybe involvement with a cult or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't normally liken those things, but so Jordy is Jordy and Lighten is Lighten. And then all of a sudden, something about them changes, and they want to go to this place, and they want to be with the, these things that are just like them. And then, you know, there ends up having to be this moment where you can reach some people and some people you can't, right? Yeah. So, like, that's why I think more of a cult, although, I mean, certainly there are people who overcome alcoholism. You never you never actually are cured of alcoholism, according to most people. Yeah. You're you're either a practicing alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. Same goes for drug addiction. If you're talking about the whole twelve step friends of Bill, uh, Bill right. W thing, um, you can be pulled from it, maybe, or maybe you can't. Maybe you eventually disappear. Maybe you're not who you were ever again. Maybe whatever has gotten a hold of you keeps you forever. Whether that's substance abuse or a way of thinking that might not be the healthiest or something along those lines. And that's kind of what I what I pulled. Unfortunately, well, I don't want to say unfortunately or fortunately. We don't really get to that until the end, though. Something's happening. Something's happening. We don't know what's happening. It's not until the very end where, I mean, maybe we can say it's anything besides, you know, monster of the week. I mean, b- before we can say anything like, uh, well, before we can actually apply that kind of thing. And it's only the fact that she's actually able to reach Jordy, you know, to talk him out of right. out of it. That sort of made me think that. Otherwise, I would have thought it was just, you know, scary movie. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, see, I, I didn't pick that up. It was the I, one I like, thing that I pulled from it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like that interpretation uh, quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's interesting to me, uh, changing topics here, mm-hmm. um, but uh, on Star Trek, particularly because that's what we talk about here, but <laughs> in, in many, many TV shows and movies, you know, the heroic thing is always to work through personal pain and adversity. Mm-hmm. It's a nice moment. LaForge... Uh, well, Picard and Crusher are telling LaForge that he's got to stay in sick bay and he really needs to rest and they need to examine him, et cetera. And LaForge asked Picard what he would do in this situation, saying, look, I, first of all, LaForge is saying he's better off being another you know, set of hands, set of eyes to, to try to discover what this thing is before it hurts anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's kind of a principle at stake here. And we know that when he asked Picard, well, Picard comes to the same conclusion that Jordy does. Yeah, I'm going to fight whatever this thing is and do whatever I can to my last breath to to fix this or solve this or at least understand it so I help somebody else. And and part of me really gets it, that, that you would probably want to do everything that you could until your last breath. I also wonder if there's anybody on the Enterprise who says, uh, you know... I'm going to turn into a hideous alien creature in a few hours. I think I'd really like to spend this time next to a holodeck pool with a Mai Tai. 
<laughs> you know? You know, you throw in the word Mai Tai and I say, you're peeling potatoes next to him, mister. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's, it is an interesting question. How weird would it be? You almost, yeah, I can't see them letting Jordy do that. Who would that no, be? No. Yeah, well, but see, that that's the interesting thing, because at, at any moment, whether it's Picard saying that he's going to self-destruct the Enterprise, right? and and just, and by the way, this is just happening in 30 seconds, right. um, a, anybody here is within a, a step of death, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of time at any point to sort of reconcile that. Mm-hmm. And and not just do anything about it to the extent of, well, like Jordy, try to figure out the disease that is turning him into something else, but actually just sort of take the time to uh, write a letter or um, say goodbye to your friends or mm. relax or anything, anything <laughs> different. And, and I get it. I realize that this is a TV show and it's 45 minutes and they've got to get to the drama and heighten the drama, heighten the drama, heighten the drama. Yeah. But I, I bring it up here because I, I at least have sort of noticed this pattern that, that that is the heroic thing in any episode. And, and you don't just sort of stop and, uh, and smell the roses and, and sort of look back on a, on a life well lived. No. No, you you just keep fighting until that last second, until you turn into a uh, hideous, web-fingered, UV-reflective monster. While Dr. Crusher learned about a new species, and Jordy learned about an old friend, it is time to find out what we can learn from Identity Crisis. All right, Ken, we've been doing Mission Log now for for going on four years. Wow. So by by my calculation, we've got at least another good year in us before we turn into uh, hideous <laughs> web finger UV reflective monster aliens. So given that time frame, at least there, there's time for me to ask you yet again as we do, does this episode hold up? Uh, and of course, this episode being Identity Crisis. So uh, Ken, what do you think? Uh I like the um I like the sense of foreboding about mm. whether they're going to transform or when they're going to transform. Like I say, I kind of wish Jordy had never transformed because then we would always have that sort of in the back of our minds. Mm-hmm. Um I like the properties of the alien. Um you know, the the sort of chameleon nature of the whole thing, the predator effect that they had. Mm-hmm. Um I'd like to like the relationship between Jordy and Susanna, but I don't. Um you saw it as healthy and non-creepy, and I saw it as puppy love Jordy, but, you know, with, with a chance of going Cujo at some point. Um, <laughs> maybe, and, and like you say, maybe it's just because of his problems with women in the past, but when he grabs her hand, or yeah. when he hugs her in the corridor, they, you know the, you know the, do you know the phrase abusing the hug? No. Yeah. No. It, well, it, it's basically what it sounds like. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You go to hug someone and then, you know, the hug lasts a little long and maybe the hug's a little tight. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, somebody's abusing this hug. This is not actually your friendly, right. supportive, whatever. And right. and that, unfortunately, and again, maybe it's just because of of the bad luck we've seen with him in the past. Or maybe it's because he was playing one scene and the woman who was light and was playing another scene. Sort of like, um, is it Ben-Hur? Where the director mm. told uh, the guy who played Masala to play it as if he was in love with Ben Hur. Oh, of course, right? And, and didn't yeah, tell yeah, Heston yeah. that, of course. Yeah, but no, I told him no. Masala was like, "Yeah, you're in love with this man." Yeah, everybody Action. on set knew it except for Heston. Except for Heston, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it almost felt like it was that kind of that kind of difference in the scene where where mm. Jordy was very much in love with her. I think there was something about the episode. It, it I want it to work. If if we knew for sure that it was about the AIDS crisis, if we knew for sure it was about chemical dependency, if we knew for sure it was about cult mentality or something like that, if there were a payoff at the end, then I might go with you. I might mm. go with it being like, yes, this episode worked. But, man, it's like every time I watched it, I just kept thinking, it's like somebody had five neat ideas and they strung them into an episode. Like, oh, yeah. that would be neat. So let's put that in. Oh, that would be neat. Let's put that in. And can we connect them all? Oh, okay, good. It connects. We got a show, but at the end of it, it's sort of like, oh well, that's it's like eating potato chips, you know. I'm it, right. well, okay, that was fine, but probably I should have had something better. <laughs> right, right. What about you? 
Well, I, you know, interesting thing, by the way, about the you're talking about Jordy's body language and the um, the abusing the hug. Mm-hmm. I, I do feel like there were scenes when I went back and watched it a couple of times where I was trying to watch her body language. And, you know, there, there is still something kind of tender from her toward Jordy as well. Yeah. So I, I feel like if you. It is interesting that you said, you know, you could play this in a way where you establish that they had a romantic relationship and now it's over, but there's still some tenderness. So then it's not as creepy. Yeah. But maybe there is an attempt to play this as mutually. There is some underlying unspoken attraction because there are colleagues, which, well, hasn't maybe, stopped a lot of other people. On except the she but. keeps speaking the part where I think of you as my little brother. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. wonder how many times she had to say that when they were serving together five years ago. <laughs> right, right. I'm sorry. I, it sounds like I'm accusing Jordy of something. It's just, it, I mean, maybe it's because of all the weirdness. I mean, maybe it's because this comes, what, two weeks, three weeks after we met the real Leah Brahms? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to. You, you were saying, sir. Oh, no, no, no. But that, that's, yeah. I, I'm still trying to reconcile that part of it. Okay. You know, um, I, I think overall, the episode, if you boil it down, there's really nothing bad about it. You know, it's an interesting idea for a monster. Um, again, not not just an enemy painted with broad strokes, but but a, a creature, an alien that is living out its biological imperative. Mm-hmm. Okay, so sure, kind of like the Horda or whatever else. Um, there's some peril for the crew. There's a sense of mystery. But man, does it feel long and drawn out yeah. um, to actually reveal all of that. I talked last week about how Star Trek can serve as a platform for other types of storytelling, in this case, horror, like we saw before. Um, It it actually worked better last week, since here I feel like what we have in the end is just sort of the final payoff, just saying, oh, look, they're aliens, and and they're reproducing, and you're going to turn into one, so we have to make you not turn into one. (laughs) That's sort of, that's it. That, that that's what we're left with in the end. There's something about that that kind of falls apart in the later acts. I, I feel like, you know, Jordy's working on his own, uh, but Data seemed to be putting together some other pretty useful information, but then he's sort of out of the picture. Um, everybody's sort of scattered. Seems yeah. like you no know, one's really working together the way they usually do. Um, in any case, it held up a little better on a third viewing for me, but overall, it's just kind of rough. Um, I like how moody and dark it is. Some great shots. You know, shooting people carrying flashlights is not easy mm-hmm. for for any cinematographer. Uh, the alien makeup is great. Uh, this is really a creative achievement for Star Trek. And the the overall thing has kind of this David Cronenberg body horror <sighs> element to it which is kind of neat to see is it the fin on the back is that what did it for you that might be part of it yeah or the cat eyes or the (laughs) snake eyes that too yeah Yeah. um so there are all these neat elements like like you say but then you add it all up to a story and it's not really one i'm anxious to go back and watch yeah um it it got better the more I watched it, but but then I think I hit peak Jordy at some point, and, <laughs> and it, it can't get better for me as an episode after that. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I I give it a I give it a, a right in the middle grade, maybe tipping over to not passing. Hmm. Um, but regardless of whether it passes to production, what about messages in this episode? Well, you know me, I like to speak in song lyric. Yes, you do. Uh, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Mm. Uh, and this actually does go back to the whole thing that I was talking about, about you know the cult or the drugs or whatever. Uh, Susanna knows that Jordy can be reached, and she knows that Bravel and Mendez cannot. Mm. Um, or the things that used to be in Mendel, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Bravel and Mendez yeah. um, couldn't be reached. And so she does what she can for who she can. She's not going to kill herself trying to uh, trying to save everyone because she knows that there are some people that she can't. And that's about that. That really is about the only thing I can think of, honestly. I mean, except if you take the whole, you know, um, uh, cult analogy, um, 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 addict analogy, and apply it as well, then that's in here too, I suppose. But that's the closest thing I'd find to a message. Mostly, this was not. See, and that's the thing we've talked about 
episodes before that were bad, but that the message was so good that I felt like they were still important. I, I mm-hmm. personally think Omega Glory is one of those. Yeah. Um, horrible episode. Great message at the end. Yeah. Enough to actually make that, that episode worth watching. Maybe even an important episode, it seems to me, despite how you know dreadful it actually is. It's an episode. <laughs> right, right. This is not as dreadful as Omega Glory, but there also doesn't have the payoff of Omega Glory. It's sort of like, okay, well, can I pull anything out of this? Oh, good. There's a thing I can pull out of it. It's not like I want it to be bonk, bonk on the head, but at the same time, I mean, give me something. You know, give me either an amazingly neat idea or, you know, some kind of message that's going to resonate with me. Instead, what I got is, is he, is he, is he creepy this episode? I can't tell for certain. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, also everything just, everything turned around so quickly. She's got perfect skin at the end of this episode. Did you see yeah. what happened to her in Act 3? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't It just, yeah, maybe part of what's getting to me the further we go is the lack of um, consequence. Not yeah. since Tasha Yar died. I mean, occasionally we get little hints that, that what happened in Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2, actually affected um, Picard. Mm-hmm. It's great that Star Trek is starting to remember past episodes of Star Trek. That's really neat. But the characters you know, seem to sort of wake up in a new world every day. And not just because they're going from world to world. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a message. I But... Does it make it worth it? I'm not sure about that. Did you find any uh, messages at all? Well, I was going to ask you, what if uh, what if Susanna hated Ravel and Mendez? <laughs> you know? I'm sorry. Okay. She, yeah. She, so she actually you know, could hear them? Yeah. We, we, we can save Jordy. Oh, no. The, they're, the other guy's gone. No, no. They're gone. We well, cannot get them back. Except Jordy said he couldn't communicate with them either. Although maybe yeah. they, maybe they both hated them. Maybe, maybe they just did. Maybe this is a pact they made five years ago on Turchana oh, 3. Oh, man. This yeah. is a very, very different episode. I'm, I'm liking the novel, though. I'm liking the novel. <laughs> now, I think part of the problem here is that nobody really learns anything by the end of this. Mm-hmm. We have this interesting, probably could have been better explained, better fleshed out uh, friendship slash relationship between Susanna and Jordy. Um but by the end of it, yes, they, they have a bond. They're friends. That's what helped her get him back and yes. not be an alien. But ultimately, there's not really anything to learn from that. This is about solving the mystery of the thing that is changing their DNA. Well, except you could say, I mean, he does say to her, what? I didn't recognize you. I didn't understand you. But somehow I trusted you. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he says he didn't know her, but he seems to be saying that he did know her. And so you could say maybe that there's a message about, you know, the enduring bond of friendship. I just then I just wish that I'd actually felt that bond of friendship between them. I mean, what yeah. I've got is two characters that I'm being told over and over again are close, but I don't see it. Right. I mean, I got I got right. more of a sense of history and maybe it's unfair to compare anybody to Patrick Stewart, but I got more of a sense of history uh, between um, Rene and Jean-Luc. Mm-hmm. than I got from this and and they had less screen time together than these two did. So I mean if yeah, you want, if you want right, to make the if right. you want to make the bond of friendship argument that's great although you really kind of have to show it to me. Um and unfortunately I didn't see that here. Yeah. Well and, and again, you know, e- even if we saw that what was there to really learn from that what what would they have learned from that at the end? Well, well they started out as friends and they continued to be friends <laughs> and then their friendship sort of served and helping them to survive this mess. Ah, okay. Sorry, yeah, you know, I've got a Michael J. Smith, uh, Michael W. Smith song in my head now. Sorry. Oh, no. It's never, ever, ever going to go away, ever. Well, it might I'm go so away. Sorry. No, it's not your fault. It's me. I speak in song, Eric, didn't I tell you? <laughs> yes. <sighs> Mission Log is produced. Are we ready for this part? We are. All right. By Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer. Are you sure? Uh, but more than positive. <laughs> Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. Uh, lots of fun stuff at Roddenberry.com, by the way, from stuff to buy to ways that the Roddenberry Foundation is helping people uh, try to save the world. So seriously, I, I, I joke about the whole produced by and all that, but Roddenberry.com. If you take nothing else away, <laughs> Roddenberry.com. Uh, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, the nth degree.
Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. There is one question that troubles me. How do the creatures on Tarchan and 3 see each other? End transmission.